here in the parish, you know, we've been working hard on the uh, Bishop's Capital Campaign, Faith, Hope, and Love, um, and been going about asking to make pledges, but you get hit up with all kinds of requests for money, and it, of course, you know, if, if people think you have a certain level of wealth or prestige, they really come after you uh, for more money. You know, and not just your pastor in your parish, but, you know, here come the Boy Scouts, here come the Girl Scouts, you know, here comes that organization, here comes that organization. And every one of them have this great knack of using Christian guilt. You know, to, well, you really are for orphans, aren't you? You really are for helping children not get on drugs, aren't you? You know, it, just kind of this way of, to use a word, manipulating us into either wanting to give or feel badly if we don't give. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing to Philemon. But first, his first concern is, is that Philemon not punish Onesimus. He's not asking Philemon to necessarily set him free or do anything else, but just accept him back because he is now your brother. And you do want to treat your brothers and sisters well, don't you? <laughs> you know, you are now a Christian, and so is Onesimus. You want to be Christ-like, don't you? <laughs> you know, we can just hear Paul doing this to Philemon. And of course, we never know what his reaction is, but we can hear it. And, and and there's a little tongue-in-cheek humor that Paul is using as well. But then, not only is Paul trying to say to him, please accept him back as your brother, please don't punish him, you know, because to be Christ-like, to follow Christ as disciples, we're called to offer forgiveness. And, but by the way, you know, he's really become very useful to me in my imprisonment in Rome. And you, you would really like to help out my ministry, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, and you would like to see the gospel spread effectively, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, so he begins not so subtly to ask Philemon to consider actually setting Onesimus free, not just to set him free for slavery, but so that Onesimus can go back to Paul. But Paul's not asking for someone to, you know, help him sort the papers and to stuff envelopes. No, Paul wants Onesimus back to help spread the gospel. Evidently, he sees in Onesimus the ability to preach the gospel. So he's asking, you know, Philemon to consider releasing Onesimus back to Paul to do essentially what, Onis what Philemon should be doing, and that's spreading the gospel and getting more converts. And we don't see it because we don't know the culture all that well. We you know, certainly don't read Greek on a regular basis that Paul would write in. But the way he's doing this, it's got, you know, we would, today we could say, he's throwing a little Catholic guilt in there to get what he wants and to teach. But then also he's making this request. You know, it's got a question mark at the end. You know, 
you, you will let Anisimus come back to me if you really want to. But as we all know, sometimes people ask us questions, and there might be a question mark at the end of the sentence, but it's really a period. They're not asking us a question. They're telling us. We're left with, okay, nice historical thing, and this is probably all exactly, you know, very historical. You know, the fact that names are in here, we're talking about real people in a real situation. But we're left with the question as readers of the scriptures, well, so what? You know, okay, does Philemon forgive Onesimus? Does Onesimus get to go back to Paul? Well, we don't know that. So we're left with this, okay, you know, this is really interesting, but so what? And the so what is tough. The so what is essentially Paul is asking Philemon to ponder the implications of claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He does it with humor, he does it a little slyly, using that little guilt stuff, but that is essentially what he's asking Philemon to do is to consider deeply the implications of what does it mean to say, I am a Christian. Of course, they didn't use the term Christian between 61 and 63. They wouldn't have used it then. That doesn't come to about 85 uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. We see that happening uh, most likely in Antioch. But still, they do know what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And... And what does that mean? And, you know, we can kind of split Christians into two groups. We have Christians, as they relate to Jesus Christ, they are admirers of Christ. And we admire a lot of people. But that, but just because we admire them doesn't necessarily mean that we want to become like them or we want to live like them. You know, maybe we would like to be, you know, we admire somebody for the practice of charity. You know, maybe that might inspire us a little bit. But to admire someone is to be able to look and recognize something really special about another person, but with no implications for our own lives. Just simply to be an admirer. The other type of Christian is a disciple. And that's different. Because a disciple goes way beyond mere admiration. A disciple strives to be like the one we admire, Jesus Christ. A disciple considers the implications of everything we say, think, and do based on our discipleship with Jesus Christ. It becomes part of our very fabric. You know, we, we strive for that moment where we're not even thinking about it consciously, but we just get to the point where we instinctively know this is wrong, this is right. You know, and, and then when it's sort of, we get kind of caught in the morass of, well, this is wrong and that's wrong, what do I, what do, I do? You know, we get caught in that morass. There's, you know, sort of the trite question, not really trite, but, well, what would Jesus do? You know, there are a lot of modern things that, you know, that happen, and especially the more sophisticated medicine gets, more sophisticated science gets, a lot of times we get caught in between a wrong and a wrong. And, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus of the first century, 
we don't know what he would do when it comes to how much data mining can we do and it not be unethical. That, that's not a question Jesus had to deal with. Now, if he were coming today, okay, yeah. But even when we're trying to deal with the, 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 some, it's easy when there's wrong and there's right. It's when we're caught in the middle that being a disciple is, is particularly hard. But still, we just can't lightly say, well, everybody else is, or society is, or nobody's questioning this anymore. We can't do that. Everything has to be thought of in the person of Christ. It, now, Paul is kind of subtle about it and a little bit humorous about saying we need to ponder what it means to be a Christian. Jesus, he brings out the two-by-four and starting to whoop people up the side of the head. And he's saying, if anyone comes to me without hating his father and his mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. All right, what is exactly he saying? Well, fortunately in Greek, Greek is a very precise language, which is why early on it became the, li the language of science and medicine, because it's so incredibly precise. There's hate, and there's a verb for hating someone that's an emotion. We all know what it is to hate someone or hate something. We know that emotion. But there's also another verb that implies not an emotion and not how we feel, it it's talking about an attitude. And Jesus, the way Luke writes in the Greek, he's using that, we've got to choose this attitude. Not the emotion, but the attitude. So what's this attitude of hating father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters? It's that attitude that my relationship with Jesus Christ is more important than all of these other relationships. And I love my father. I love my mother. But if one of them should get between me and Jesus Christ, well, then there's, at, there's this attitude. Not that we hate them or condemn them. No, it's that they are, I'm able to cut loose, you know, cut that relationship loose in my life enough, enough, not completely, but enough to make Jesus first in my life even before a parent that might try to get between me and Christ, or a child that is being disruptive in the house and divisive, and, you know, it's, uh, children can split parents in a heartbeat, you know? And so, but what becomes more important? Your marriage or your child? And, and hopefully, your marriage. Because if your marriage is great, or as good as it can be, that's to your child's advantage. But that's what Jesus, he, he's just, he's trying to say what Paul, well, he is saying what Paul said. There are implications with choosing to be disciples. And Jesus, like I said, he just brings out the two by four and nails us right between the eyes. Nothing but nothing but nothing must interfere with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And whatever does, we need to put it aside so that Jesus stays first.